Anyway, wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, look at your neighbor and say, it's wonderful to be here with you today. Yes, it is. You are exactly right. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series, kind of a mini-series, uh, really. We're going to be grappling with some commonplace misunderstandings about Christianity, God, the Bible. These sorts of misunderstandings and misconceptions abound. We all know lots of them. And the goal in doing this for the next three or four weeks is pretty straightforward, just to get some clarity and to try to set the record straight based on what the Bible actually says. So the first bull that we're going to take by the horns is this. I'm going to put it in the form of a question. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't believe and think the same way as you do? Um, isn't Christianity against all other religions? Now, I expect we've all come across that sentiment in some form. Some of us may have been taught that way growing up. I know people who were. Uh, others of us may find that absolutely infuriating, and still others might think, I don't know anything about this subject, so let's figure out what's going on. That's what I want to do. Let me pray. Lord God, we, um, sometimes we have all these ideas in our minds about who you are and what you're up to, and they're just not quite right. A lot of worldly stuff can fill our imaginations and our thoughts, and so we pray right now in your spirit that you'd wash the worldliness out of us, and that you would renew our minds in Christ through your word. Amen. You may have heard of the poet, English poet William Blake, pretty famous poet. Um, didn't just write poetry, he also wrote some books. One of his books was written in 1788. And in that book he makes an argument. He's one of the first modern people to make this argument, even though the argument's gotten a lot of mileage since then. The book is called, All Religions Are One. And surprise, surprise, the argument is that every religion is basically true in its own way. In other words, all religions basically say the same thing. Now, closer to our own time, a really smart guy, a professor up at Boston called Stephen Prothero, has noted that that claim going all the way back to William Blake is, in fact, a rather odd claim to make because it's a claim that we really don't tend to make in other areas of life, like politics or economics, for example. So, for instance, we don't generally assert that democracy is essentially the same thing as fascism. We know, we know they're not the same, and we know that one is better than the other, and I hope you know which one that is. Uh, we don't generally assert, for, by way of another example, that capitalism is the same thing as communism. We know that one of those is better, too. Stalin was wrong. Or to make it more local, around here we know that Georgetown County is not the same thing as Horry County, even though there are forces that seem to wish it was. At a church I used to work at, uh, we had this event called Theology on Tap. We'd get together in a pub, we'd talk religion, anybody was welcome, no questions were barred. And at one of these events, a guy once submitted, he said, back in the old days when people were not really exposed to different religious viewpoints, it, it made sense that folks would think that their religious viewpoint was the only one that was true and right. But now, because of increased connectivity and exposure, now we know that there are intelligent people that have different religious viewpoints, and that means that it would be absolutely arrogant for any single person to think that they're right. We've all heard that before. There's this Christian philosopher called Alvin Plantinga. I've read a few of his books. He never wastes a sentence. He uh, lives up in Michigan. He was born into a Dutch Reformed family. Uh, and he says sometimes, usually at least once or twice a year, he gets a student, often a student from a place like California, and they come up to him and they say, Dr. Plantanga, if you had been born in Saudi Arabia instead of in Michigan, you would be a Muslim instead of being a Christian. And that, dear professor, is why I am an agnostic, because your beliefs are just a byproduct of where you were born. 
And when that happens, Dr. Plantanga invariably looks at the student and replies, yes, and if you had been born in Saudi Arabia instead of California, you'd be a Muslim instead of an agnostic. And the student never likes to hear that. They never like to hear that. Here's the thing. The simple fact that where we were born impacts what we believe does not, it does not give anybody a free pass from having to seek and discern where truth lies. One of the questions I used to ask at Theology on Tap was, do you actually want any particular religion to be true? Here's something I think. A lot of times, human nature being what it is, we don't want any religion to be true because then we'd have to be accountable for our lives and that would take away our freedom. Much preferable for many of us, including a lot of people in the church, is to live with a certain spiritual ambiguity and then we can selectively and eclectically use whatever spiritual ideas we might fancy without having to be accountable to any person or any community or to God. And here's something else I think. I think a lot of us have this worry, this fear that if they regard their religious beliefs as true, you know, which means that the people who disagree with you might be wrong, that that's going to make you arrogant and superior. And isn't it that kind of arrogance and superiority that breeds religious violence? Isn't that the source of things like the Inquisition, the Crusades, modern-day terrorism? I think that sort of reasoning and that type of conclusion is erroneous. And I think the Bible actually teaches us this. I want to show you what I mean for the next few minutes. We're going to start this exploration in the Old Testament with a really disturbing story. And then we're going to move to the New Testament. We're going to meet a guy, a rabbi called Saul. A guy who had an encounter with Jesus that radically reshaped his attitude towards people of different religions or people of no religion. So we're going to start in the Old Testament and work to the New Testament. And what, I, what I want you to notice today, this is very intentional, is that there is a pattern and a shift across the Bible from how things started to how they end with Jesus Christ that informs the way we should think about people who are religiously different from ourselves. So let's start there in the Old Testament. We're going to go to the book of Numbers. Uh, in the book of Numbers, the Hebrew people are wandering through the desert. They're journeying to the promised land. They're facing tons of obstacles along the way. And their final enemy, one of their final enemies, is the king of Midian. And this king, in order to deal with the Israelites, bribes a soothsayer called Balaam. He hires Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. That's his defensive strategy. And so Balaam gets on his donkey. He's on his way to do the cursing. And an angel of the Lord appears on the road, wielding a fiery sword. But in this story, Balaam cannot see the angel, but his donkey can. And so the donkey stops, and trembling in fear, and squats down and refuses to, to walk any further. And so Balaam starts beating that poor donkey. And what happens next? His donkey, who it turns out was a cousin of Mr. Ed, the talking horse, actually starts speaking. This is a comical story. The donkey says, what do you think he says? He says, why are you beating me? And Balaam says, because you're making a fool out of me. And the donkey replies. This is a long conversation. He says, am I not your faithful donkey? I've carried you everywhere your whole life up until this present moment. Is it my habit to treat you this way? This is a wild story. Balaam never stops to think about the fact that the donkey is actually talking. He just engages in the conversation. And then at about this moment, his eyes open, and he too sees the angel with the fiery sword, and he realizes that the donkey saved his life. Because if they had kept going, Balaam would have ended up like a shrimp at the Japanese steakhouse. And the upshot is that the mission to curse the Israelites gets canceled. And so the king of Midian then goes to plan B. 
And plan B is where things get kind of dark. Plan B was to use, or more accurately, to force a group of Midianite women into promiscuous sexual relations with Israelite men. And that meant that those men would not only break faith with their wives, but also with God himself, because doing that would lead them into idolatry. This is how the book of Numbers, chapter 25, describes it. These women invited the guys to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to those gods. That's what happened. That was the tactic. Now, in Israel, idolatry is the ultimate moral and spiritual sinkhole. And that's why the prophets of Israel, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi, they're always railing against idolatry. And they did that because idolatry often involved temple prostitution. Sometimes it involved child sacrifice. They railed against idols because idols never demanded justice for the poor. They didn't demand fidelity to your spouse. They didn't demand economic honesty. They didn't demand that you care and love your children. And they railed against idolatry because idolatry is trying to use spiritual power without spiritual or moral accountability, without a concern for justice, without a concern for the good purposes of God. And that is why idolatry in Israel was absolutely unthinkable. Now, the low point in this sordid tale of Balaam and these Midianite women is when an Israelite guy called Zimri brazenly brings his Midianite idolatrous girlfriend into the camp, actually into his tent, in the full view of Moses. And Moses had forbidden this. And a priest called Phineas sees it, and he grabs a spear, and he runs to the tent where Zimri and this woman are having conjugal relations. He catches them in the act, and he thrusts his spear through both of them. It's a harrowing story. It's dark. The ancient Near Eastern world was a violent place. But here's something we need to see. In that story, Phineas, the priest who dealt with the idolatry with the spear, he actually is a hero in that story. And his heroism is linked to this word, zeal. Zeal. That word gets used three times to commend Phineas. He had zeal for the Lord. And with time, that little word zeal would take on a life of its own in Israel, and it would become a really, really important word. A few centuries later, for example, Israel was once again being oppressed. This time the oppressor was a Syrian king. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means divine manifestation. So this guy did not lack self-esteem. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he killed countless Jewish people. He desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by putting a statue of Zeus in it. He even sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. And a pig is one of the most unclean animals in Jewish law. And then he went on to demand that all the Israelites there betray God by becoming idol worshipers. And a lot of them went along with this. But there was one guy who wouldn't. He was a priest. He was an hombre called Judas Maccabeus. That means Judas the hammer. And Judas picked up a spear and he started a rebellion. And against all odds, he overcame that wicked king, Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've ever heard of Hanukkah, this is the event that Hanukkah commemorates in the Jewish calendar. Now that inspiring story is recorded in an ancient text that we have today called the book of Maccabees. And this is a book that that guy Saul, who I mentioned earlier at the start of this sermon, he would definitely have read this book. And in this book, Judas Maccabees, just like Phineas back in the book of Numbers, is a hero. Why is he a hero? Because he had zeal, because he picked up a spear, because he went against God's enemies zealously with that spear. Now, at this point, you're wondering where we're going in all of this. 
And all this is leading to a moment when God and other faiths and followers of Jesus and intolerance and in violence are going to get turned upside down. But bear with me. Fast forward a few more centuries. This time Israel's enemy is Rome. Once again, some people in Israel were prepared to compromise with Rome and to become idolatrous, worshiping the Roman emperor in order to get along. But there were some people who wouldn't do that. And those people came to be known as zealots from that little word zeal. And the zealots believed that they should fight God's enemies. They had zeal for God. Pick up the spear. And one of those zealots was called Saul. Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul, St. Paul. We first meet Paul in the New Testament. He's helping out at an execution. There's a guy called Stephen, one of Jesus' original followers, and he's being stoned to death. He's killed, and Saul was there. This is what we read, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there, and he approved of Stephen's execution. You bet he did. Get rid of that religious other. Saul had zeal, just like Phineas, just like Judas the hammer. And Saul absolutely believed, and a lot of people today still think and believe like this, that those who disagreed with him on religious matters would mislead Israel, and they got to be stopped by any means possible. Arrest them. Execute them. I don't care. That's what zeal was in his mind. In his pre-Christian days, as he says himself in Galatians 1, he was extremely zealous. But then something happened. Something that would change Saul's life, something that would change the history of the world and completely reverse the way that Saul or any follower of Jesus, including you and me, should regard and live with and interact with people of other faiths or people of no faith, like our agnostic neighbors, and we have a lot of them here. That all happens in Acts chapter 9. John read it earlier. Saul's there breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples. He goes to the great high priest. He says, give me a letter of authorization. I'm going to go up to Damascus. I'm going to find them. I'm going to ferret them out. I'm going to arrest them and bring them back here. And maybe we'll stone them just like we did to Stephen. His heart is full of zeal. He's on a mission for God. And then while he's traveling, here's what happened. Suddenly a light from heaven flashes all around him. He falls to the ground. Maybe he thinks for a second that like Moses, he's going to get to see God's glory. Maybe he thinks that heaven has seen his zeal and he's going to get rewarded. He's going to have an encounter with God. But then something utterly unexpected happens. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Saul is not commended by God for his zeal. He is rebuked for it. He is condemned for it. And it comes in the form of a question that never in a million years Saul expected to hear. That question is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What does that mean? Saul's doing the work of God. He's a hero of Israel. Who are you, Lord? That's what he says. He's never asked that before. This is a guy who was a teacher. He was very learned. He taught people. He knew who God was, except today he doesn't. Not in the face of this reality. He doesn't. Who are you, Lord? Sometimes it comes to a person to ask that question, to ask, who are you, Lord, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and strength, because you want to know God more than you want to know anything else. Sometimes that comes. There's this moment of silence, and Saul doesn't know it yet, but in this moment, he's dying. This is the end of life as he knew it, and it is the beginning of something else. Verse 5, the silence breaks. Saul, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. 
In other words, every time you harm, every time you threaten, every time you kill one little brother or sister who follows me, you are persecuting me. And now I want you to get up and you'll be told what to do. I am Jesus. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. Now, people sometimes speak of the conversion of Paul, but that's not quite right because in this moment, Paul did not for a second cease to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not cease to revere Moses or to love God's law or to revere the prophets. More accurately, everything he's been believing gets turned upside down. Let me put it like this. Saul had been absolutely right to be zealous for God, but absolutely wrong in understanding what that zeal consisted of. He had been completely correct that God was at work in this world, but completely misguided. And by the way, that can and does still happen to all of us. He had been completely misguided about how God is working in the world, at least until he saw the crucified one, at least until he saw Jesus. Supremely, Jesus on the cross, the persecuted Jesus, that's when Paul sees the kind of zeal that God actually requires. And that is not a zeal to kill your enemies, but to love them. It's not a zeal to hound and persecute people who don't think like you or see things your way, but a willingness, in fact, to suffer persecution for their sake. True zeal for God is this, and listen carefully, it is zeal seeking to love, to forgive, to embrace, to identify with, to understand, to break down barriers. Zeal to realize in repentance that those we thought were enemies are in fact beloved by God. So how do you you and me right here today in Polly's Island think about and feel about and relate to people of other faiths or in our case people of no faith people of, who are agnostic or maybe atheist I want you to bring that question back to your mind now as we move on along towards the end of the sermon here and just hold that question in your mind we've all got neighbors like this after encountering the light of Christ Saul finds himself blind and he's led by the hand to a home in Damascus and he stays there and he prays for three or four days fasting and praying uh, meanwhile, God visions another guy called Ananias. This is a new character in the story. God says to Ananias, I want you to go to this house, and I want you to ask for a guy from Tarsus named Saul, and I want you to pray for him that his sight would be restored. And what does Ananias say? Ananias says, Lord, thou hast many good ideas, but this ain't one of them. Because you're so busy running the universe, you've probably not heard, but Saul is really not what I would call a safe person. I don't want to go there. And God says, I want you to go because this man Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to people like you and me, people who aren't Jewish. And I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias goes, finds the house, knocks on the door with fear and trembling. He asks for Saul, Saul the killer, Saul the persecutor, Saul maybe who had arrested some of Ananias' friends and family, put him in jail maybe. Saul comes to the door, he's blind, Ananias speaks, but he doesn't say, he doesn't say, oh, Saul, you're in trouble now. God's going to make you suffer, buster. That's not what he says. Verse 17, Ananias goes into the house, he lays his hands on him, and he says, brother Saul, brother Saul. We lived in England for five years before coming here, as you know, and we got to be really good friends with another American couple over there. They would always have us around for barbecues with the kids, and one day they told their kids to start calling me Uncle Roger, even though we weren't blood relations. And I really liked that. I loved to go over there just so I could hear them call me Uncle Roger. In England, 
in Britain that was so refreshing because over there, they don't even call their real uncle's uncle because then somebody might be expected to give another hug. They don't like that. So I love going over there. We weren't actually family, but we were. And it comes to this. In the New Testament, followers of Jesus were to treat people who differed religiously from them, even people who may have persecuted them, by placing their hand on them and saying, brother, sister, what is this? What kind of movement is this? What's going on here? As a matter of historical record, Paul would go on to radically and inclusively and promiscuously embrace religious others like never before. His favorite word for other people became brother or sister. That's what happened over the rest of his life. His zeal for God got reconfigured. He became an excellent student on how Jesus interacted with religious others. Jesus who loved them and served them and cared for them and touched them just the way he did his own people, the Israelites. It's as if Jesus somehow thinks that his presence and his healing and his message has burst through all the boundaries of merely human religion. And so if somebody just wants Jesus and just responds to Jesus and just listens to him and follows him, God will somehow take care of the rest. In the end, when people hated Jesus, as they did, he did not take a spear in his hands like Phineas or Judas the hammer. He took a spear in his side. That's what happened on the cross. And it's on that cross that the world finally learned what true zeal for God looks like. And Paul met this spear-pierced, crucified Jesus, and after that he never thought about zeal the same way. Paul writes to his uh, church in Romans 10, and he talks about other Jews. He said, they're very zealous for God, but their zeal does not have knowledge. He says that in the book of Romans. They have zeal, but not knowledge, and that's what he used to have. And so in closing, I want us to think about what zeal based on knowledge actually looks like, because that's what we need. What's this new kind of zeal that Paul gets from Jesus? For starters, it is the exact opposite of what Paul used to think. In Romans 12, he says, I want you to never be lacking in zeal. But in the next breath, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. That's zeal based on knowledge. Bless them. Love them. Care for them. Die for them. Now, at this point, I want to get a little bit practical, a little bit applicational. How do we relate to people in our lives who have different religious beliefs or no religious beliefs, which is kind of another form of different religious beliefs? Let me say a few things about this. I got a good friend. He's a devoted follower of Jesus. And for many, many years... He used to think that this devotion meant that when he met a person of a different religion or an agnostic, his job was to out-argue them. Some of you may have tried that. Some of you may still be trying that. Uh, so once, for example, my friend was on an airplane, and he starts having a debate with the atheist sitting next to him, and eventually everybody in that part of the cabin joins in. It's kind of a, you know, a big group discussion, but my friend and this atheist are at the center of debating. And when he landed, he said he was on cloud nine because he was certain he had won that debate. He had crushed the opponent. He had demolished all of his defective beliefs. He had exposed all the flaws in his atheism, which oddly enough did not win that guy over to the love of Jesus. Go figure. Lately, my friends changed his strategy. He says now he's learned the best thing to do with other people, people of other religions or people of no faith, is simply to listen. Be curious. Care about him. Ask questions. Want to learn. Assume that you might actually have something to learn. And so here's some homework for you. I don't always give homework, but today I'm going to give you some homework. 
I want you to think of somebody right now in your life, a neighbor, a colleague, someone at a store you visit frequently, that may have a religious difference from you. Maybe they have a different faith. Maybe they have no faith. Maybe they have a withered faith. And I want you to look for a moment in the near future to connect with them, a car ride, an afternoon on the beach, the deer stand out in the fishing boat, neighborhood barbecue, maybe just before parachuting out of an airplane. That can be a very opportune moment to talk to people about the big questions. Here's the uh, special receptivity there. And I want you to ask and listen. Ask something like this. Hey, John, tell me about your spiritual journey. Hey, Jeffers, what was it like growing up in that tradition? Hey, Cindy, how did that shape your life? Hey, Kelly, what do you believe about this or that? No pressure in this. You don't have to make a sales pitch, okay? You don't have to worry that if you show interest without saying that you think they're wrong, that you haven't done their du your duty as a Christian. No pressure. Just ask. Just care. Just be curious. And then pray. Pray that Christ would reveal himself to them. Pray that he would pour his love into their heart. Everybody needs that. Zeal based on knowledge means we don't just tolerate people of other faiths. It means we honor them. We love them. We protect them, even if we don't always agree with them about spiritual matters. And let me mention something here that I'm sure is in your minds at this point. Sometimes people wonder, well, what do Christian things happen to people of other faiths when they die? Do adherents of other faiths or people who aren't religious, are they in danger of hell? And the answer, of course, is yes. But guess what? People who affirm Christianity can also be in danger of hell, too. Because being right with God is not just about affirming the right beliefs. After all, some of Jesus' most intense, stringent criticism was of religious leaders who confirmed all the right beliefs. Some of his strongest condemnation went to those people. In our day, in our cultural moment, in this society, one of the greatest tests of Christians will be our treatment of people who differ religiously from us. America is increasingly becoming a post-Christian society. You can't take it for granted that we've got this loosely Christian ethos anymore. So we're going to have more religious others living next to us and working with us. And that is why we must not forget that we follow a Jewish man who was killed by a Gentile Roman government and died on a cross praying that God would forgive. And so let's agree that we will pray not only for every follower of Jesus in Polly's Island and around the world, but also for those who don't follow Jesus, whether they're right here on the Waccamaw Neck or over there in Saudi Arabia. And we do that not because we're doubtful about following Jesus, but because we want to follow him with zeal according to knowledge. Let me leave you with this little story. Some of you might know Arthur Burns, especially those who are 55 and older. Arthur Burns was one time chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank hung around Washington in the 60s and 70s, and during those years, he was part of a prayer group that met at the White House. It was a Christian group based on the teaching of Jesus, but Arthur Burns was Jewish. And so when it was time for somebody to pray, nobody ever called on him because they thought it might be kind of awkward to ask him to pray in that context. But then one week, there was a new guy, a rookie leading the group, and he didn't know that Arthur Burns was Jewish. And so when it came time to pray, he said, Arthur, would you lead the prayers? All the old-timers were kind of wondering what was going to happen as they began to bow their heads. And this is what he said. This is what he prayed. He said, Lord, may all the Jews come to know Jesus Christ, and may all the Muslims come to know Jesus Christ, and may all the Buddhists come to know Jesus Christ, and may all the Christians come to know Jesus Christ. Amen.